When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. The best chance for peace between Israel and Palestine is for Uncle Sam to butt out. This debate took place on the 27th of February 2012 at Hall in London. Um, so, I'm Jonathan Friedland from The Guardian, and with great pleasure uh, to be uh, moderating or chairing, perhaps is a more appropriate word, um, our speakers and our debate for tonight. As you know, the motion before us is the best chance for peace between Israel and Palestine is for Uncle Sam to butt out. A nice American colloquialism, uh, despite this being uh, Intelligence Squared in London. And so much has been going on in the whole of the wider Middle East, uh, across the Arab world in particular, the so-called Arab Spring, uh, the Arab Awakening, depending on how you uh, prefer to call it. But people on both sides of the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, whom some, some might accuse of being almost addicted to the attention of the world have been slightly feeling left out in recent months um, because the uh, attention has moved away. Uh, nevertheless, that conflict does still go on. Um, and it's that one very particular aspect of it that we want to explore tonight. We are going to be doing something different in this debate from some debates on this conflict that you may have heard before. And it's different in this sense. We're not aiming for a, perhaps sometimes what can be a crude debate which pits Israelis against Palestinians or even friends of Israel against friends of the Palestinians. Uh, rather, all four speakers tonight would insist that they are looking for solutions, for indeed resolution, rather than simply defending one side or the other. Nevertheless, within that framework or within that context, uh, there are, and we will hope they are revealed tonight, substantial disagreements between them about how best to achieve that uh, resolution. Uh, they are for people who, in their own different ways, dedicate much of their professional lives to wrestling with this subject, and they do it with huge commitment. Um, so I think we're very, very lucky to have them, and I'm going to introduce them all one by one as uh, they come up to speak. But first of all, I just want to um, mention something that you will have been doing uh, uh, already, which is casting your pre-vote. I'm going to give you the result of that, the vote that you walked in with. Uh, the vote before you'd had a chance to be swayed by the almost Ciceronian rhetoric that is going to be unleashed uh, from this panel. Um, but there will be, you will cast a final vote later on. And the way that works is you'll have one of these cards. If you want to vote for, you tear off the for bit. If you want to vote against, you tear off the against bit. And if you're an abstention, you slip the entire card into a ballot box. Um, almost Vladimir Putin-esque way method of voting. Um, <laughs> 
we're going to have a very proper and democratic result uh, uh, um, uh, in contrast to there, perhaps. Um, So we're going to do that. Uh, That's the format, and uh, the rest of it I'm going to explain more or less as we go on. There is a little new twist in the Intelligence Squared format, which I hope you're going to enjoy, uh, which we'll come to later. But let me say um, something about each of our uh, uh, speakers as we uh, introduce them. So we're going to kick off the debate uh, with the very first speaker uh, in favour and for the motion, and perhaps he will make his way to the podium while I introduce him. Uh, Our first speaker is the founder and chairman of Forward Thinking, an NGO which works with the leadership of all parties on both sides of the divide in the Israel-Palestine conflict, also a published author, regular broadcaster. Uh, Please welcome to speak first and for the motion, William Sieghardt. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Your water's arrived, thank God. And I'd, I'd like to just echo what Jonathan has said about the makeup of the panel tonight. I'm a great admirer of Jeremy Ben-Ami and all that he's done with J Street in the United States and of Roger Cohen and his wonderful columns in their attempts to try and influence U.S. government policy. Uh, in, in most areas in, these, uh, in this debate, um, uh, we're on the same side, but tonight we're parted because I think we have very different views, as you'll discover tonight. Mustafa and I have a big challenge this evening because I believe that, on the surface at least, supporting this motion seems to be rather counterintuitive. After all, for the last 40 years or so, US government officials and politicians have been crisscrossing the globe and at least appearing to be trying to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And they've had some notable successes. They've helped Israel make peace with Egypt and Jordan, and made various attempts to help Israel to do the same with the Palestinians. So why, you may ask, would it make any sense at all for Uncle Sam to butt out now? Well, I'm here tonight to argue that while the United States is in charge of trying to broker such a peace, in practice, it stops any serious progress in the conflict's resolution. Counterintuitive this may seem, but over the next few minutes, I hope you'll see what I'm getting at. Now, up until last February, to the cursory observer at least, the peace process looked to be reassuringly real. We would regularly see an Israeli prime minister sitting with a Palestinian or an Egyptian president, a Jordanian king and the president of the United States in Washington or somewhere in the US, supposedly trying to make peace. But what no one would have told us was that the last thing President Mubarak or King Abdullah really wanted was a democratic Palestinian state based on one member, one vote, and the rule of law. Why? Because a successful democratic Palestinian state in their region would pull the rug from underneath these non-democratic rulers. After all, if the Palestinians could have pure democracy, why couldn't the Egyptians or the Jordanians? And the United States didn't want to weaken its key strategic allies by letting the democracy bug catch on. So the unfolding events of the Arab Spring have torn away the pretense and exposed the emptiness of what has been really going on for many, many years. No Egyptian president or Jordanian king will be heading to Washington with Mr. Netanyahu anymore. These regimes' interests were committed to the status quo. There were plenty of empty phrases mouthed about peace, but no real incentive for any progress. And from the United States' strategic perspective, 
The status quo in the Arab world supported its perceived military and economic interests as well. Cheap oil flowed. Regimes were eagerly supported and never questioned about their legitimacy or their human rights records, even if they were ruled by ruthless and corrupt autocrats, as we've seen over the last year or so. These were, after all, our guys. And all of this continued until last February, in the name of stability for the region. So the motivation for progress in solving the Israel-Palestinian conflict from the United States' perspective was outweighed by other considerations. But just as there was no genuine political commitment to progress in the peace process, underneath the surface there were, and still are, plenty of influences in the United States that actually militate against any progress as well. Most politicians will tell you that the biggest obstacle to peace in this conflict is the continuing building of Israeli settlements. In some cases, these are towns or even cities that are constructed on Palestinian land in the West Bank, land that would have to be returned to the Palestinians in any peace deal. Indeed, criticism of building of them has been official United States government policy for not just President Obama, but for a number of previous administrations before him. President Obama himself, you may recall, has spent the first three years of his presidency trying to get a settlement freeze. Why? Because over the last 25 years or so of the peace process, through the terms of four United States presidents, over half a million Israelis have settled in the West Bank. And amazingly, this has happened with the help of billions of dollars of aid from the United States, with many hundreds of millions of this money coming in the form of tax breaks to U.S. citizens who donate money to Israel. So while the official government policy has been against this settlement building, the U.S. tax system has encouraged its citizens to support them. Now, as if this were not troublesome enough, the United States policy on the Palestinians has also been completely counterproductive. Some Arabs will tell you that the Arab Spring began not last February, but in January 2006, when the Palestinians held their own free and fair election. An election which was won by the Change and Reform Party, a part of the Muslim Brotherhood, with 44% of the vote. Sounds familiar? The winners of this election, a.k.a. Hamas, declared a unilateral ceasefire and offered to extend this for a decade in order to begin serious negotiations towards a just and durable peace. Despite this being a golden opportunity to bring Hamas into the peace process, the United States, for fear of destabilizing its allies like President Mubarak and King Abdullah, decided not to recognize this result. And instead, with the help of Egypt and Jordan, armed the losers in the election, Fatah, who had been ousted by their people for perceived corruption and inefficiency, and sponsored a brutal civil war between the two groups. This division between the Palestinians still exists today. Now, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to work out that one of the key prerequisites or cornerstones to progress in resolving the conflict is unity amongst the Palestinians. Various countries like Saudi Arabia, 
and Turkey have invested much time and energy in trying to achieve this. Yet the United States continues to veto the idea. Indeed, it's actually enshrined in US legislation, passed by Congress, against the pleas of Hillary Clinton and President Obama, that if the two Palestinian factions, Fatah and Hamas, should unite and create a unified government with a unified negotiating position, the United States would have to cut off all financial support for the Palestinian Authority. Extraordinary? Yes, but true. And if you wanted any further evidence as to the United States' inability to resolve this conflict, even with a willing White House, let's look at the experience of President Barack Obama, a man whose first telephone calls on assuming the presidency were to the Israeli and Palestinian leaders, accompanied with a public declaration that this would be one of his top foreign policy priorities in his first term of office. Now, President Obama, as I said earlier, has been trying to persuade the Israeli government to freeze settlement building to allow negotiations to progress. Yet settlement building is currently happening at its fastest rate for many years. Less than two years ago, Obama made a speech at the United Nations declaring he could see the possibility of a Palestinian state being created within 12 months. A mere 12 months later from this speech, in another speech to the same assembled group of world leaders at the United Nations, Obama threatened to veto a proposal to the United Nations Security Council to recognize a Palestinian state. Even more humiliating for him, when a resolution was taken to the Security Council demanding a settlement freeze, the draft proposal used the very words that he had used in a speech of his own. So the proposal, representing official United States policy, as espoused by the US president himself, was vetoed on the instructions of the president himself. The United States was one lone voice amongst the 15 members of the Security Council. So startling was this that even the United Kingdom and France, two of the United States' closest allies, came out and condemned the veto, a sign that Europe has finally recognized what this motion tonight suggests, that the United States is incapable of following through on its own policy and therefore incapable of taking an even-handed approach in the conflict. So here is a president as committed to solving the conflict as any in living memory, and he finds himself unable, for various domestic political reasons, to gain any traction whatsoever. In fact, despite his inability to make progress and his obvious personal frustration with the Israeli Prime Minister, financial and military support for Israel from the United States has risen during his administration. Now, you may say Obama may not be in the White House next year. So let's look at the alternatives to President Obama, the leading Republican candidates for November's presidential elections. Mitt Romney, in his own words, doesn't believe the Palestinians want a two-state solution. He thinks they all want to destroy Israel. I don't believe there should be an inch of difference between us and our allies Israel, he says. Newt Gingrich goes a stage further by describing the Palestinians as a made-up people with no distinguishing national rights at all. And if you thought that's a worrying position, Rick Santorum's line is that all the people that live in the West Bank are Israelis. There are not Palestinians. There are no Palestinians. This is Israeli land. 
Now, I don't believe on that basis that any of these people could lead an even-handed approach to settling the conflict. But if you still have any doubts to the veracity of what I'm saying, just think of it this way. The US is the most powerful country in the world. As well as its uniquely dominant military and diplomatic power, it also gives enormous quantities of aid to both sides, to the Israelis and the Palestinians. Billions of dollars to one side, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to the other. Every year. Yet despite this all-controlling power and influence, both hard and soft, on a country smaller than the size of Wales, in 45 years of United States control of the so-called peace process, it's been unable, with all its combined might, to bring about any fundamental change. In fact, the situation gets worse year after year. And as we sit here tonight, neither side are even talking to each other. Does it sound like Uncle Sam is helping, or does it sound like something else is going on? Who is to blame for this? Well, in a way, it's the complex system of government that is the United States. I'm not going to put the blame on specific individuals or the Jewish lobby, which works so effectively on Israel's behalf or on Israel itself. I'm not going to blame the million or so Russian immigrants to Israel who are predominantly right-wing in their views and have transformed the kibbutzim green in the miracle that Israel used to be. It's the aggregate of all of these interests that makes the system incapable of change. It's become an immovable force, regardless of the goodwill coming out of the White House. And as I think my example illustrates, in the United States, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are coming from, whether you're Barack Obama or Jack Bauer, you cannot shift the system. I believe, and this may be unlikely, but if the United States remove the unconditional diplomatic support that it provides to Israel in the United Nations and threatened in the light of straightened financial times in the world to withdraw the massive financial aid to both the Israelis and the Palestinians, a genuine peace process would develop very quickly of its own accord. Reality and pragmatism would take over with the drastic political changes in the region. In fact, tragically, it's probably only because Uncle Sam has a continued presence as the prospective arbiter and controller of the so-called peace process that the conflict carries on. So my conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, for the sake of the peace that the majority of Israelis and Palestinians and the rest of the world so desperately craves, butt out, Uncle Sam, butt out. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now you know why I wanted the glass of water up here, you see. Not just to drink. Um, thank you very much. Here's the twist on the format if you haven't been uh, to an Intelligence Squared debate recently. We're going to use the rem uh, next two or three minutes for those on the other side of the motion to have a chance to question uh, the speaker just on very specific points he's made. And why don't we uh, start with you, Roger Cohen. Do you have a question for William Seacup? Yes, I do. William, if the United States is as committed to the status quo, to doing nothing as you make out, why do you think it has broadly encouraged the Arab Spring? Why was it part of the coalition to oust Gaddafi? Why did it restrain the Egyptian army and so make sure that Tahrir Square led to the ousting of Mubarak? Why has it called for the ousting of Assad? Why has it given support to Fayyad uh, in the West Bank? Why has it, in the person of General Petraeus, said the continuation of this conflict is contrary to the U.S. strategic interest? Why? There's an enormous difference between what politicians say and what politicians do. 
And uh, I think, if I remember rightly, as we watched the defenestration of President Mubarak, that the United States administration was at least 72 hours behind the curve. And the United States at the time, if you remember, probably, privately, was desperate for Mubarak to survive. That meant stability for them. The United States is, I'm afraid, in the Arab Spring, not the encourager and supporter of the Arab Spring. It's always been a little behind the curve. That'd be the simple way of me answering your question. All right. And Jeremy Benami, you also have a question, I think, for William Seeker. Well, just to defend the honor of my country, uh, (laughs) the uh, solution that you put forward at the very end of your remarks seemed to be for the United States to take action, for the United States to withhold the veto or for the U.S. to use aid as leverage. It would seem that butting out would not involve actually taking action, yet in search of a way to have leverage Uh, in order to move this forward, the place that you went was to U.S. action. So I'm just wondering whether that really is butting out or it's actually acting differently. Well, butting out seems to me to stop interfering, and uh, it's interfering financially and diplomatically in a way which is extremely unhelpful to resolving the conflict. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, William Seacott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Our our next speaker, and you've already heard him there in fine voice, is the founder and president of J Street, uh, known probably to many of you here, an an organization for mainstream American supporters of Israel, with a different, supporters of peace and of Israel, author of a new book, A New Voice for Israel, uh, with his case against the motion, Jeremy Ben-Ami. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Good evening, everyone. I rise tonight to oppose the motion that the best chance for peace between Israel and the Palestinians is for the U.S. to butt out. As we've already noted, tonight's debate is a little unusual in that you have four people on these two sides who actually agree on a whole lot. We agree, for instance, that uh, the preferred and, in my opinion, the only viable solution to this conflict uh, rests with two states for two peoples. We agree that the status quo is, is... unsustainable and that time is running out on the possibility of achieving a two-state solution. We agree that nonviolence is the only strategy for Palestinians to seek their freedom. But what we don't agree on, and that alone is the topic of this debate, is whether the best way to reach that conclusion is for the United States to be in or out of the picture. So I have two objectives in my presentation tonight. The first is to establish what this debate is not about so that you're not distracted as you consider the motion by some of the very attractive arguments that have already been put forward by William, and I'm sure will be put forward by Mustafa, about the dismal track record of my country, the United States, in Middle East peacemaking. The second is to examine whether, in fact, there is a better alternative to U.S. involvement. I think in doing so, it'll be evident that As frustrated and even angry as many of us may be over the failures of the United States over the past 20 or more years, the alternative approaches that exist for reaching our shared vision without U.S. engagement are even less likely to succeed in getting us to the resolution that we seek. My partner Roger Cohen will, in his presentation, lay out why the United States should be motivated to change its approach talk about the important role that it has played in resolving other conflicts around the world and has played in Middle East peace, and outline how it can play 
It's a role in this conflict differently moving forward. So let me begin by offering up front three proposed stipulations about the U.S. role uh, in, in Middle East peacemaking. Number one, the United States has failed in its efforts to bring peace to the Israelis and the Palestinians for more than 20 years since Madrid and Oslo. Our opponents will find no argument uh, from us uh, that America's track record is a catalog of failure. And I'm sure there won't be much argument from many of you in the audience either. We are further today from a two-state resolution than we were at the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993. Settlements have expanded. As William said, the number of settlers has has risen over half a million and has doubled uh, in the last 20 years. The chances today of creating a viable, contiguous Palestinian state have diminished. This legacy of failure has increased the bad blood between the two peoples. It has empowered radicalism. It has diminished the likelihood of accommodation. So let's stipulate to a record of failure. Number two, the crux of that failure to mediate this dispute is that America has too often played the role of Israel's lawyer rather than a fair and neutral arbiter and mediator. I'm sure that, again, I'll find no argument here from my opponents when I say the U.S. makes a critical mistake when its guiding principle in establishing its position is to ensure that there's no daylight between the U.S. and Israeli government positions rather than charting its course on the basis of what is most likely to achieve a fair, just, and lasting agreement between the parties to the conflict. Number three, I would be the last person to argue with the notion that political forces in the United States have made it and continue to make it extraordinarily difficult for the U.S. to be a successful mediator and to apply pressure on both sides when necessary. Traditional lobbies and political actors representing the American Jewish community and right-of-center evangelical Christians in the United States have made it very difficult for foreign policymakers to pursue an assertive, balanced, and effective program designed to achieve a two-state solution. So let's agree that if the motion before us today were to resolve that the efforts of the United States to date have failed, all four of us would be competing for the two seats on your side of the stage. And I have to tell you that having just flown back in from a week in Jerusalem and Ramallah, Tel Aviv and Hebron, I can assure you firsthand that where things stand right now is in fact an utter failure. So let's not spend time in this debate tonight, cataloging the failures of the past and the mistakes that have been made by American diplomats or the failure of American politics. Let's stipulate to them. The motion before the House tonight is whether the best chance for peace between Israel and the Palestinians is for Uncle Sam to butt out. And that motion requires us to be forward-looking and prescriptive. The right question for you to evaluate this evening is whether the chances for peace improve with the United States engaged in the process or fully disengaged. Rogers and my argument rests on the notion that the proper response to the failures of the United States to date isn't to advocate American withdrawal from the peace effort, but rather to demand that the U.S. learn from those mistakes, adjust its course, and engage even more forcefully, more assertively, and more meaningfully than ever before. My second point this evening is that there's no better alternative out there for achieving a nonviolent and agreed-upon resolution to the conflict than to have the United States 
involved. Let's look at the alternatives. Some may choose to argue that we should just leave it to the parties themselves to work it out. I hear this all the time. The only way for this conflict to end is for the parties themselves to come to the table and sit together in direct talks. Usually this argument actually comes from those on my right, and in fact from those who actually don't want an agreement but are fairly satisfied with the status quo and happy at this point to use Palestinian reluctance to engage in fruitless talks to prove that they are not a genuine partner for peace. I don't buy the direct talks argument. This conflict, this situation is like a bitter divorce. And you don't ask an angry husband and an angry wife to sit at a table together in direct talks and work it out, to divide up the property, to figure out a custody arrangement for the kids. You bring in a mediator who works together with the parties, often in separate rooms, not together. And they do what it takes to get the parties to a deal. So I doubt that my, my opponents would suggest that direct talks without a third party are more likely than a diplomatic process with the U.S. engaged to achieve peace. So let's accept that you need a third party to mediate. Who else is out there? Europe? Now? Does Europe have the bandwidth, the leverage? Are there other issues on the agenda here in Europe? The Arab League? I think there's a few other things going on in the Arab world right now as well. I don't think that the U.N. can serve that role either. The U.N. doesn't have the trust of the Israelis. And, and let's be honest, at the end of the day, Israel gauges what it can do and how far it can push by what reaction it is getting from the United States. So it's hard to name a party that can substitute for them in playing the role of intermediary. So perhaps the argument is that we need to look beyond diplomacy, that we don't need to reach an agreed-upon uh, resolution. And the only strategy that will work is that rooted in pressure on Israel that will force her to make one-sided concessions. Some might suggest using a UN resolution. Others might propose governmental sanctions, cutting aid, boycotts, divestment. Now, I recognize that all of these fall under the rubric of nonviolence, and I am thankful to that. And I say more power to those who pursue nonviolent resistance. But is this going to work? Is it going to convince Israelis to change course unilaterally? Have you met Israelis? <laughs> Outside pressure will only convince them to dig down even more deeply and resist, will only prove their belief that the entire world is out to get them, and will only make them resist even more strongly because at the end of the day, no one's going to stand up for them except themselves. So I would say the pressure is not the way to go. So finally, what about taking the issue to the United Nations? My issue is whether this actually brings peace. UN membership itself is not a substitute for resolution of the conflict. No. Is it symbolically important? Maybe. But even Palestinian leaders, including President Abbas, acknowledge that the day after the UN admits Palestine as a member state, the sides still need to get back to the hard task of reaching an agreement that actually ends the conflict, which brings us right back to the present dilemma. So I would argue that the burden falls to, to you, my friends, to argue for the idea that the U.S. should butt out to, to lay out a realistic, effective alternative to U.S. engagement that actually gets us where we want to go, to an agreed two-state resolution. I understand, believe me, I understand how frustrated all of us are 
who deeply want peace and who want a two-state solution. How frustrated we are by the present state of American politics. Thank you for the reminder of what I'm going back to tomorrow, William, for uh, <laughs> the Republican primaries. <laughs> and how frustrated we are by the, the failures of American policy. But expressing frustration over American failure to date is no substitute for articulating a viable, effective program. So I ask you to consider tonight, as you consider your position on the motion, don't let anger and frustration over this difficult issue drive your vote. If you consider the options, I hope you will agree that the best way to achieve peace between Israel and the Palestinians is certainly not for the United States to butt out. It's for it to butt in more effectively, more forcefully, and in a more balanced manner. I will leave it to my colleague, Roger Cohen, to outline for you what such an American role would look like. Thank you. Thank you. Stay there. Thanks very much. Thank you for that. The two people who did get to sit on this side of the table, uh, rather than competing for those chairs. You've got questions for Jeremy Benami, I hope, and Mustafa Barghouti, we haven't introduced you properly yet. We will, but your question for Jeremy Benami. My question is, Jeremy, you, you do agree that the two-state solution is vanishing because of the Israeli and American policy. Yet, don't you think that by maintaining dependence on the United States, you are this, you're just resembling what Einstein described as insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results? No, I think that's precisely the, the point that we are arguing from our side of the table, which is that the U.S. has to change its course. It has to do what it's got to do differently. But pulling out and being disengaged and not being a part of the solution is not an answer either. I, I, again, I couldn't agree with you more that the, the worst thing to watch about the last three years has been that all of the things that have been tried have been tried before and failed before. And so we don't want uh, the next effort to be a repeat of the past. We want a different direction, but I don't think anything will move forward uh, without U.S. engagement. Thank you. And a question from you, William Seagull. Uh, yes, J Jeremy, you say you, you'd like the United States to, to do it differently. That would be your way of seeing the future. Would that include the United States engaging with the democratically elected government of Palestine from the 2006 elections? Well, the, the president of the Palestinian Authority uh, and the head of the PLO, Mahmoud Abbas, is at the moment the head of the uh, body that represents the Palestinian people in negotiations. And so that is the person uh, to engage with the Palestinian Authority uh, Prime Minister Salam Fayyad, uh, as well, is uh, someone that the United States engages with. So, so but he's the, not the elected, the, the government I'm talking about. Right, but the, but the negotiating body for the Palestinians is the PLO, and Mahmoud Abbas is the head of the PLO. So it, uh, that is the person to engage with on the negotiating front. All right, thank you. We'll get into this more, don't worry, uh, as the debate comes on. Jeremy Ben-Ami, thank you very much. Our next speaker, the second for the motion, is a um, leading Palestinian democracy activist, a member of the Palestinian uh, delegation to the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991, 21 years ago. So it just tells us all how long this uh, has been all going on. He was a presidential candidate in 2005 for that uh, Palestinian leadership position. Speaking for the motion, Mustafa Barghouti. Thank you. 
Well, thank you for inviting me to this debate, and thank you all for coming tonight. There are four reasons why I think Uncle Sam should put out. The first relates actually, uh, I will be different here from how Jeremy approached the issue. It's about what is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is. It's not just a dispute between two sides that need mediation or conflict resolution. It's, uh, and you cannot really equate between the Israelis and Palestinians in this case. Today, the Palestinian struggle is a struggle, is a national liberation struggle to liberate ourselves from occupation. It has started as a liberation movement, and now it's becoming a struggle against an apartheid system, uh, very similar to the struggle of the people of South Africa against the apartheid system at one point of time in South Africa. It's very similar today of the struggle of the African-Americans against segregation. The United States government and the Congress has very strong strategic alliance and relationships with the Israeli government, which makes them biased to Israel. And that's why they are incapable of supporting the Palestinian liberation struggle, which would be the solution to the conflict. More than that, actually they are fighting against democracy in Palestine, the same democracy they are calling for all over the Middle East, but not for Palestine. This situation will not change unless we have a powerful and strong grassroots work and movement against occupation, exactly like has happened with the case of South Africa. Today, the United States, unfortunately, is preferring the strategic, military, and political alliance with Israel and its government at the expense of the Palestinian people, but also they are hurting in the long run the future of both the Palestinians and the Israelis. Their silence and their incapability to affect the Israeli settlement expansion is practically destroying the two-state solution. The American support, especially the Congress support, to the Likud party and to Mr. Netanyahu reflects a very serious short-sighted policy because they are opposing the struggle we are conducting, which is, by the way, not only a struggle to liberate the Palestinians from occupation and apartheid. Actually, we are struggling to liberate the Israelis themselves from a settler colonial apartheid system, the last settler colonial system in human history. The second reason is that the United States cannot play a role of an honest broker for many reasons, because of its alliance with Israel first, but also because of the power of the Israeli lobby or the pro-Israeli lobby. Today, the United States is not like 1956 when Mr. Eisenhower, the president, President Eisenhower, interfered and forced Israel to withdraw from the occupied Sinai and sector Gaza after the war that was conducted then. At that time, the United States could play that role. Today, it's different because it is very hard to see a separation between the American policy from the Israeli policy when it comes to the Middle East 
and when it comes to Israel. It reminds us with what Ben-Gurion said in 1956 when the United States forced Israel to leave Gaza after six months of occupation. He said then, we will never allow this to happen again. And that was the beginning of the build-up of a very powerful pro-Israeli lobby. But the power of the lobby is not only in the fact that it mobilizes votes in the United States. Actually, it mobilizes something more important, which is the election funding machine, something that Jeremy is trying to oppose by creating a different machine. But at the same time, that shows you how powerful this lobby is. Third, the power of this lobby is reflected in the new alliance between the extreme right-wingers in Israel, including Netanyahu, and the extreme neoconservatives in the United States. Actually, since the year 2000, there hasn't been any American independent policy from Israel. They allowed Sharon to destroy Oslo. They were silent about Israel's rejection of the Arab Initiative, Arab Peace Initiative. They allowed Israel, and they took a position against Palestinians' free elections in 2006 and against Palestinian national unity. And they stayed silent about the terrible war that Israel conducted on Gaza in 2009, which took away the lives of 1,400 Palestinians, including 440 children. Even when President Obama tried in the beginning of his presidency to stand against settlements and to support the recognition of Palestine and its admission to the United Nations, he was forced, even the American president was forced to retreat. And he was constrained by the Congress, by his own administration, and even by his own party. We're not talking about the United States putting out because we don't recognize the importance of the United States. We're asking for that because so far, all the United States have been doing is being proactive and aggressive, defender of Israeli impunity. And by doing so, it is allowing the destruction of the very last opportunity of peace based on two-state solution, which is going to be harmful to both people. The third reason why I am for this motion is related to the concrete reality. Let's look at the concrete reality. Since the Americans have taken over the responsibility of running the peace process or the so-called peace process, they've been failing. They failed in Camp David. They failed in Y River. They failed in Sharm el-Sheikh. They failed in Annapolis. And they failed with the last effort of the so-called Quartet Initiative. The reason is, and the failure will continue, the reason is that you cannot have a solution unless we change the balance of power. And the balance of power today is very much in favor of the Israeli government. The United States does not have the intention or the motivation to pressure Israel to change the balance of power. As a matter of fact, it is only pressuring the weak side, the Palestinian side. In reality, the United States administration and Congress today are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Because one of the main reasons why we have skewed 
balance of power today in the Middle East is because of the American support of Israel. The United States, Israel is the largest recipient of American aid in the whole world. The United States have provided Israel with American technology to become the third largest military exporter in the world. The United States has the policy of what I call knee-jerk reaction to any effort to criticize Israel in the United Nations or in other platforms. That's why the United States is obstructing what Mr. Obama himself have called for, which is the admission of Palestine as an independent state to the United Nations. Practically, the United States even destroys its own targets. They speak about supporting Mr. Abbas and others in the Palestinian government, but practically they're embarrassing him and weakening him because after six years of being involved in the so-called peace process, he got nothing but a big failure. That's why, because of this American policy, the peace process has become an alternative to peace, not an instrument to achieve peace. The peace process has become nothing but an instrument to keep status quo, a status quo and to provide time for the settlement activities which are destroying the very last opportunity of two-state solution. In reality, the United States has been providing an umbrella to Mr. Netanyahu and people like him to compromise the compromise of two-state solution. Finally, yes, we have an alternative, Jeremy. We need an alternative. And the alternative is not to continue to depend on the United States administration, but actually to work in a different way. To follow the same example that the people of South Africa has done, have done. I still remember when four years ago I was interviewed on CNN, and they asked me about the changing the United States policy. And I said that at that time, four years ago, Mr. Mandela, Nelson Mandela, who is the most respected person in the world, maybe, and, who, and, and every American president was trying to get a photo opportunity with him, at that very time, four years ago, Nelson Mandela was still on the terrorist list of the American Congress. We will change the situation with an alternative approach, yes, by forcing pressure from the popular, sufficient pressure from the people. When we reach that point, when the Palestinian popular nonviolent resistance rises more and more, when J Street can change in reality the opinion of Jewish liberal Americans in the United States, then we can speak about changing the American role. This would be, that's why today the best chance to progress forward is for Uncle Sam to put out. We should give an opportunity to an alternative course. We should give an opportunity to the rising Palestinian spring of nonviolent resistance, to the boycott, divestment, sanction campaign, which is growing everywhere, to a true international solidarity movement that supports Palestinians and the future of real peace in the region. We should support a creation of a new alliance between the Israelis and the Jewish people who categorically refuse and reject occupation 
apartheid and racism with us, those who struggle for freedom of the Palestinians, for democracy, for ending apartheid, for true, lasting, and comprehensive peace, rather than the illusion of peace. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're going to uh, just keep Mustafa Barghouti there for a moment or two while, uh, first of all, you, Jeremy Benami, a question to Mustafa Barghouti. Uh, Mustafa, you talked about the instrumentality of popular resistance and the instrumentality of BDS as a form of pressure. That's boycott, divestment, and sanctions for people who are not steeped in this debate as much as you are. Excuse me for that. Um, What is the goal of those movements? Is the goal a peaceful Palestinian state living alongside the state of Israel? And if so, will that be part of the charter of these movements to make clear that this isn't a threat to Israel's very existence, but is a move towards peace, which is really the goal that we all seek? Well, we all know that it is already in the charter of this movement. And we all know that even groups like Hamas have now agreed with the two-state solution based on 67 borders. We all know that all the Palestinian movements today and all political parties accept and are engaging in nonviolent resistance, which, uh, which I personally consider a great success for what we've been calling for for eight, ten years. But in reality, uh, I am answering you this If Israel kills the two states option, we will continue our nonviolent resistance for one state solution with full democratic rights for everybody. Israel should not think and and believe that if they kill the very last opportunity of two state solution, we will just submit to apartheid and become slaves of occupation. No, we will continue our struggle. The choice is actually an Israeli choice. And to be frank with you, I don't know whose security is threatened today. Israel is the, one of the most powerful military forces in the region and in the world. They have 400 nuclear heads. They have a mighty military army. I don't think it is Israel's security that is at risk today. Okay. While every day, we as Palestinians have our security threatened. Let's have a brief question, brief answer, just from you, Roger Cohen. Mustafa, you, you described very movingly the painful reality of oppression for the Palestinians in the West Bank. Nevertheless, in the end, if there is going to be change, um, Israel has to be persuaded to give up land for peace. How do you ima- Israel, as you just said, faces a choice. How do you imagine that, absent the United States, absent its strongest ally... Israel could ever be induced to take that gamble? The main reason why Israel continues this existing policy is because occupation has been going on without any costs. It's actually making benefits. Israel makes 
a profit of $682 million yearly from investment in settlements in the Jordan Valley alone. The confiscation of the land of Bethlehem area alone brought to Israel something like $30 billion. It's a very profitable occupation. The situation will change only when we manage through our nonviolent resistance and with strong international solidarity to make occupation costly. Thank you, Mustafa Barghouti. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have now the last of these opening uh, speeches. Uh, our fourth speaker uh, speaking against the motion, former foreign editor of the New York Times, now columnist for that newspaper and for the International Herald Tribune. Please welcome Roger Cohen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it would be wonderful if the moon really was made of cheese. It would be wonderful if Jews and Arabs could live in harmony in the Holy Land, barriers fall, the United States butt out, as the emotion I oppose has it, and peace at last prevail. In fact, more than wonderful, it would be wondrous. But that's not the world or the Middle East we live in. Fantasy like inattention, is dangerous in the conduct of global affairs. We're dealing with the most scarred, most contested, most totemic patch of real estate on Earth. We're dealing with the legacy of war or near war ever since the United Nations passed Resolution 181 in November 1947, calling for the partition of Mandate Palestine and the establishment there of two states, one Jewish on 55% of the territory and one Palestinian on 42%, with the Jerusalem area, 3%, under UN trusteeship. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, not a million miles from what most of us might imagine could be a solution today. Arab armies invaded and lost, Losing became their habit. Today, 65 years on, the percentages for a proposed territorial division have changed in Palestinians' clear disfavor. The West Bank and Gaza amount to some 22% of the land against the 42% originally on offer. Grievance, loss, division, estrangement, and zealotry have sharpened, not eased, the original confrontation. To imagine, to dream, that in these circumstances, any peaceful resolution not advocated, shaped, and underwritten by a third party is as fanciful as saying that Europe could have risen from the ruins in 1945 without American help. But which third party, and Jeremy has gone over a little of this, I know, the world of 1945 is not the world of today. China and India are rising, how about them? Well, they're focused mainly on themselves. The Arab League has actually stirred into life since the Arab Spring began, but it's still largely on life support. Russia, well, its capacity for enlightened thinking has, I think, been encapsulated by Syria. And that leaves, the United States, still the world's sole superpower. Now, Jeremy has spoken 
of America's failures and failings in Middle East diplomacy. They're real, they're substantial, they're embarrassing, they're failings of strategy, of focus, of balance. But let's face it, blaming America is also a pastime among the chattering classes. Big targets are easy targets. Iraq and Afghanistan have undermined the United States. It's not been a great decade since 9-11. But let's not forget U.S. achievements. Peace with Egypt, the work of Jimmy Carter. Peace with Jordan, signed at the White House under Bill Clinton. Some credible security on the West Bank now for the first time. The work of the U.S. military training Palestinian police forces. These are all critical developments that limit the possibility of renewed conflagration. In the broader region, as I suggested earlier, I think the Obama administration has worked in favor of the Arab Spring. Now, we don't know how this will play out in Egypt, in Libya, in Syria. That's opaque. But this much is clear. Arabs are focused on Arabs. Their focus on forging societies that are more open, more accountable, more transparent. They are not focused on Israel. They are no longer, as William evoked, being manipulated by Western-supported dictators who use the Israel-Palestinian conflict as a distraction. Now, we don't know how this will play out, but the history of democracies suggests that over time, and I believe this firmly, this should improve the possibilities for peace. America is also working hard to restrain Israel on Iran. Who else could? Nothing's more likely, in my view, than that an Israel from which the United States had butted out would feel compelled, or at least more drawn, to bomb Iran's nuclear facilities and that, I think, would be a disaster and one that would inflame the region for many years, killing off any faint hopes of peace. Beyond the Middle East, ladies and gentlemen, what major transition in the last generation from conflict to peace has occurred without U.S. involvement? The fall of the Berlin Wall and the integration of United Germany and the former Warsaw Pact states in the European Union and NATO, unthinkable about, without the brilliant diplomatic work of Bush Sr. and Jim Baker, the ending of the Bosnian War, Richard Holbrooke's work, the ending of the conflict in Kosovo, the work of America, peace in Ireland, only achieved through U.S. mediation, and the critical shift in thinking of influential Irish Americans who told Jerry Adams the game was up. I think our opponents tonight have succumbed to fantasy. You know, I'd love nothing more than to share their illusions. As an American, why should my tax dollar support Sisyphean work? But I know Pax Americana because I've lived it. I've seen the garrisons, far-flung garrisons that sustain it. And I'm certain no other Pax between Israelis and Palestinians is a serious proposition. Consider this basic fact. Any peace, any territorial division will involve the victorious power since 1948, Israel, giving up land for peace. 
That's what it did with Egypt. This is a risk. Nations do not take strategic risks lightly. Jews, in particular, are through with hoping for the best. Jews are through with trusting their neighbor. Jews are through with a wing and a prayer. Been there, tried that. Israel will not take the risk of giving up land, the risk I firmly believe it must take if it wants to remain a Jewish and democratic state, unless convinced it has the full commitment and guarantee of the United States to to stand behind it should its concessions in the name of peace meet incitement in the name of war. The Palestinian pursuit, in other words, not of compromise on the 1967 borders, but of all the land. Therefore, if you're not interested in symbolic gestures, grand declarations at the UN and the like, you are bound to support American involvement and view arguments for butting out as what they are, a feel-good gesture that sounds good in a South Ken or West Village bistro or even perhaps in a sushi bar in Ramallah, but does nothing in the end to do what I think we all want, make Palestinian lives better on the ground and move forward toward peace. Of course, U.S. involvement must change character. Prime Minister Netanyahu has toyed with President Obama for the president to end up at the U.N. vetoing his own words on freezing West Bank settlements shows how far domestic political considerations can skew American endeavor. This has to stop. The success of my partner Jeremy's organization, J Street, demonstrates that sentiment is changing in the American Jewish community. Criticism of Israel is no longer taboo. An important idea is sinking in, that to be a friend of Israel, you can, indeed, you must be a critical friend. As the Irish example I gave earlier suggests, the evolution over time of American Jewish sentiment will be important for more balanced and effective U.S. peacemaking efforts. Just as Irish Americans made a difference in Ireland, so can American Jews in Israel. As this process continues, here are a few necessary U.S. steps in my view. First, Focus on product, not process. Be bolder in laying out the known parameters of solution. There are no secrets in the concessions both sides have to make. In fact, it's very like what I described in 1947. The concessions on settlements, on the right of return, on guarantees for Israeli security, on Jerusalem. In other words, get more involved. Second, be a genuine... It's no good, President Obama, saying the 1967 lines are a good starting point, and then walking away from it. Follow through. At the UN, three months later, he didn't even mention it. That's not consistent, and it's not serious. Second, be a genuine mediator, not Israel's lawyer. Give ironclad guarantees to Israel on security, but convey how real security in the long term must involve territorial trade-off if Israel is to be a Jewish and democratic state, if Israel is to live by the values enshrined in its founding charter and not be and continue to be a nation exercising a corrosive, unacceptable dominion over another people. 
Third, reassure Israel and gain the credibility of both parties through a presidential visit early in what I expect to be a second Obama term. There has to be a rapport between Palestinians and Israelis with the president as this moves forward. Fourth, respect and encourage Palestinian democracy and unity. The majority on both sides is still for peace. The trick is getting the majority to be heard. Fifth, bring in a new team. Break with the failure of the past. Clearly, the likes of Dennis Ross have had their day. And sixth, build a strong coalition going beyond the quartet. Ladies and gentlemen, I've witnessed and feel on my conscience as a Jew the daily humiliations inflicted on Palestinians. I know we're contemplating the world's greatest geostrategic failure since World War II. Do something. Change something. Change everything. Be radical. The clamor is understandable, and I understand how our opponents tonight have succumbed to it. But in a shipwreck, it's generally wise to cling to the wreckage rather than head off into unknown depths. Rather than butt out, the U.S. should change tack and do so with new balance, focus, intensity, and consistency. It should not embarrass us as it has. A century ago, Kipling warned us of the temptations of illusion and fantasy. He wrote, when the Cambrian measures were forming, they promised perpetual peace. They swore, if we gave them our weapons, that the ways of the tribes would cease. But when we disarmed, they sold us and delivered us bound to our foe. And the gods of the copybook heading said, stick to the devil, you know. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, in the Middle East, if we really want peace, we would be wise to stick to the devil we know, the flawed great power that has done more than, more than any other to extend democracy and peace in the world since 1945. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. As you know, that was the last of our four speeches. We're just going to have a quick fire of questions, starting with you, William Seeker. Uh, Roger, you, you've accused our side of, of living in a, in a fantasy world, but isn't it a bigger fantasy to expect someone to change their behaviour after 40 years of going in the wrong direction? I mean, all your six points, uh, I think, are absolutely correct, but what on earth makes you feel that suddenly the United States and President Obama are going to change? Well, I think uh, American exasperation is growing. There is a recognition on the strategic plane that this conflict is not in the U.S. interest. General Petraeus is not alone in seeing that this conflict is a radicalizing factor uh, in the Arab world and that if jihadism has inflicted a terrible price on the United States, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is clearly a powerful recruitment tool. So that awareness is growing. In addition, um, as both Jeremy and I have tried to suggest, and I'm not saying this will happen overnight, um, I do think there is a real shift uh, in the American Jewish community which will, in time, um, and I, I know why you'd be skeptical, but in time will be reflected in Congress uh, and in, in the White House. American Jews are uncomfortable in growing numbers with an Israel that occupies and oppresses another people, an Israel at risk of losing its Jewish and democratic character. Thank you. Mustafa Barghouti, quick question. Roger, you spoke about 
making the life of the Palestinians better through the administration today. But do you know that today the Palestinians, after all these institution-building acts, today Palestinians have the sixth highest rate of unemployment in the world. We have 38% of our budget spent on security apparatus, and we have constant violations of human rights of the Palestinian people. And the best model that, that they have is to make the Palestinian Authority a security subagent for Israel. Is that the solution? And what is the motivation for the United States to change? I did not hear a single thing about any motivation, anything that would motivate them. Okay, quick answer if you can, Roger. Well, on the motivation, I think I just tried to explain that the U.S. has really determined that this conflict is not in its strategic interest. If it's not in its strategic interest, it should do something about it. Mustafa, I'm not going to argue with you on the abject, uh, terrible conditions in the West Bank. I've witnessed them. I've written about them. Um, and uh, they trouble me. Uh, on the other hand, um, I do think that Prime Minister Fayyad has done some very serious work that um, the World Bank, after all, declared um, Palestine recently uh, ready for statehood now. Um, yeah, new cinemas have opened, new apartments are being built, new towns, uh, new roads. Uh, um, I think there have been some improvements, but from a very, very low base, and life continues to be um, humiliating and difficult for many Palestinians. Roger Cohen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think you'll agree, four really uh, intense and uh, powerful speeches we've had. They've now, uh, they've had your, uh, their say, rather. Now it's going to be time for you to have your say. Before we do that, I want to give you the result of the pre-vote. Uh, this was your vote based, as I said before, you'd been stirred by these powerful speeches. Uh, those of you who were for the motion that, yes, indeed, the best chance for peace is for Uncle Sam to butt out, 243. Those against, 163. But the don't knows almost uh, in front on 212 don't knows. So that's the uh, swing voters that you've got to play for. Uh, both sides will be competing for those 212 and to get people to change sides. Uh, what we're going to do now in our remaining 30 minutes or so is most of it is going to be taken over to contributions, questions, etc. from you, which I'm going to bring back here for responses to, from the panel. I'm going to take them in groups of three. Um, if there's a tiny change in the light, that will help me. Let's start with the microphone here. Uh, because we've got a lady here in the uh, second row. And what I want to do is get the microphone ready for the next one. Can I see any hands over here? Uh, okay, gentlemen further back there, um, up there. So we'll, those are ready, and I'm going to take... I'll come to you as, much, uh, as many of you as I can. Let's hear from you. Yes, well, certainly I, I lost my mind. I don't know which one to support. But one thing, just... You presented, Mr. Cohen, you presented an excellent case in a way. But just one simple question. Last week... A, a, a bus in the West Bank uh, taking students, young kids, going into uh, the road, you know, the winding roads and so on, while there is a, a separate settler's road, as you know. Uh, that bus has turned down and the tragedy was losing, I, I can't remember how many kids. In Come that. directly to the question if you can, yeah, just because there's so many. Is, the question is, would the United States be able at least to persuade Israel to open these roads to Palestinians? Thank you. Um, admirably concise. Thank you. There we are. Let's go to the next question. Then. 
Okay, we've got somebody up there. You're going to be next after we've heard from you. Yeah, yeah. and I will um, you, How um, I'm going to ask the, um, well, the against uh, side of the table, how would they feel about uh, any outcome of any discussion being brokered with the United States in being in between? I mean, Jeremy, you mentioned that any, it's like a divorce situation and you need to have a mediator. Isn't this like having your mother-in-law being mediating that, <laughs> that divorce? I mean, you, you... Thank you. We got it. That's great. And uh, we've got somebody there. This is going to be the third of this little group. Yes. Ideally, it'd be good if we have a question for this side of the table as well, because so far they've both been relating to there. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to be asking for... Uh, Where are you? Jeremy Benamy here. Oh, there you are. Okay. okay yes. Um, speaking in pragmatic terms, I'd just like to know exactly how does J Street work to change the dynamics? What is it doing that gives you um, hope that, that the Congress and the whole, all the players will have a more realistic and more beneficial influence okay. on the process? Thank you. And, and before we take, get answers here, does anybody have a question for this side of the table? Uh, you do there. So why don't we just get, hear your question, then we're going to get answers straight away. Yeah. The microphone's in slightly awkward position. There we go. Okay, the microphone may not be on just yet. Not really. Let's have another go. One more go. Uh, I, I, yeah. Uh, I, I just said that I normally agree with Dr. Mustafa Barghouti on many points, but I wasn't sold, that, sold on his argument today. Um, the reason is, I, I think that uh, uh, Dr. Mustafa said that uh, we can't continue going back to the United States when we, on and on, we keep failing. But I think we even stuck with the grassroots approach for even longer than we stuck with the United States, and we failed just as, as much. Uh, the Palestinians have appealed uh, and worked on the grassroots strategy uh, for as long as I can remember. And in fact, if anything, it feels like people are getting more exhausted, and I can't see how the support of grassroots around the world could translate into policy for the Palestinians. But on the other side, if, if you don't mind, I just have one question for the other side. It has to be so brief, because they've already got plenty to get through. Yes. Well, just, uh, I uh, understand what you're saying, but I've just come back from Washington, where I attended a conference where people from the White House spoke. And they were very adamant to communicate to us that, one, uh, the Palestinian issue is not a priority in the end, although they understand and support all of the views that I think this table shares. But also, and more importantly, that... Um, the United States will never, ever use punitive measures against Israel. And okay. I, I cannot see how we uh, they could really then yeah. achieve anything. Thank you. I think we have got the message there. Let's go with you, Jeremy Benami, first. Why don't you pick up that last point? Or can you imagine the White House ever really you know, wielding the stick uh, on, on Israel, given what the uh, ladies just mentioned there? And how does J Street change the dynamics of American politics? That was the question over there. Well, I think what's needed is, is there has to be pressure on both sides. I think that if you have a one-sided approach with a stick, let's say, being wielded against only one party, that party isn't going to respond in the way that we all want. And there's, there's Palestinian recalcitrance as well. And there are issues that need to be raised with both sides. So I'd like to see the United States not be the mother-in-law. I would like to see the United States step back uh, and be more of the uh, even-handed arbiter. Uh, in this in this conflict, and and that is a change from the road of failure in the past. And to answer the question over here on my left, the way that that is going to happen is when the political space in the United States is created 
that a United States president and the foreign policy-making team uh, feel that they can act in that kind of a way. And, and that is... And for people who are not uh, ultra-familiar with J Street, just in a sentence or two, just give us a sense of what it is J Street does to change this dynamic. The, the most important thing is to, to organize and bring together particularly Jewish Americans who recognize that Israel's interest is in achieving a two-state solution, and we intervene in the political process the way that you're allowed to in the United States, which is we endorse candidates who support a two-state solution and active American leadership and a change from this route of failure, and we raise money for them. And this is a new voice in the American political dialogue, and it's going to change the balance of, of the considerations that are in the political process. Thank you. And Mustafa Barghouti, the question that came to you was, okay, the U.S. approach has been tried a long time, but so has grassroots action, and that too has not borne fruit. As a matter of fact, uh, this question illustrates my point, because the only time when we could change parameters was when we did grassroots uh, uprising in the first intifada. And that was the only reason why there was a peace process. But the problem is that we were all deviated from continuing the struggle by the so-called Oslo process. And after 20 years, we all see today what Oslo led to. There was a transformation. The PLO, instead of being a leader of national liberation movement and care about the people at the grassroots, they were all engaged in diplomatic acts. And eventually what we got today is nothing. If there is, I don't think I need to convince you about the power of grassroots. All you need to do is to look around you and see what people could do in Tunisia and in Egypt. The mass popular resistance is proving to be the most effective way. And that's why we should stick to it and we should increase it and we should repeat the best traditions of what we did in 1987 and then we were deviated from. Thank you very much. Um, before we go back for more questions, um, Roger Cohen, just address the point that was made very uh, forcefully there that if, you know, you talked about Israel being, uh, America being Israel's lawyer, the question was said, you know, it's like Israel's having your mother-in-law there for a mediation dispute. Uh, how, how, given that there's been this long past of America being, in your phrase, the, Israel, uh, the, the lawyer for Israel, how does that change? And perhaps say a word to the lady who's saying America hasn't even persuaded Israel to open up these settler-only roads to buses, etc. Well, yes, if I could start with the roads, I think, uh, yes, the United States um, and its partners should certainly be able to um, get Israel to um, open roads that uh, are closed, uh, remove roadblocks, and generally um, facilitate life um, for Palestinians who want to go about their business and family lives uh, on the West Bank. But that's not enough. Uh, we're not really talking here about practicalities. We're we are, to, we are talking okay. about um, we, are, we, we are talking about non-citizens. The people on the West Bank are, are non-citizens. This, this is unacceptable and corrosive uh, to Israel. And the United States needs to be firm in saying and consistent in saying that settlement activity, settlement expansion, uh, has to stop. I believe that a second-term president. Um, in the changing environment um, in the Middle East and the changing domestic environment uh, can be firmer, uh, more effective, and more persuasive uh, toward Israel 
in persuading it to do what is ultimately in Israel's self-interest, that is, arrive at a two-state solution. Thank you. William, do you want to get in very quickly, but I do want to go back as soon as I can, very quickly. Yes, I just wanted to pick up on the point that um, Roger was making about the West Bank. Salam Fayyad is a man who's the Prime Minister in the West Bank who's been imposed upon the Palestinians by the United States. The United States have created in the West Bank a one-party state which brutally tortures its political opponents and is much like a Mubarak state from the past. It's a state which has rejected democracy and that's what the United States has been behind. So the whole idea that the United States is trying to do good work in the West Bank and maybe can push a bit further is absurd. The United States policy in the West Bank is one that supports occupation and isn't likely ever to end it. Is Gaza any more democratic, do you think? I don't think Gaza is particularly more democratic, but at least its government was at, were the people who won the election, which is, you know, in some senses better than nothing. All right. Um, let's hear some but other voices. That, that, you, that well, we, we, I want to get people sorry. in. You'll have another chance, I promise. Yeah. Let's hear... People have been very, very patient. You, you're all up there, and wave at me down here if I can... Um, Hello. Yeah. Could I ask William Seacar, please? Um, if the US were to butt out... What does he think is the answer to finding a peaceful resolution to this issue? Thank you. Hang on, not, not yet. We're, going to, we're, taking, we're taking a group. Two or three. Yeah, you're the next. Yeah. This question is directed to the group against the motion. How do you expect the U.S. to take a more unbiased approach with lobbyist powers such as APAC holding so much influence? Okay. Um, I'm quite keen to get some women in because this is an all-male panel. We're very conscious of that. So here's a lady here. If we can get the microphone to you, that's good. Are there more people with hands up? Yes, waving ever more frantically. That's excellent. Yeah, but if you pass the microphone along that road, you go first. I guess my question counters the gentleman's question over there and it's directed at William or Mustafa, and that is the level of financing that does go into... uh, uh, pro-Israeli lobby. Um, I guess, where would you see that funding going if, if you cut that off? I, I would think that it might go to increasing the amounts of settlements, and I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Okay, thank you. And the person who's got the microphone, you should already have it. Oh, it's up there. Okay, I thought there was a woman here who had it. Uh, you go ahead, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, this is for uh, Mr. Cohen. Uh, about the changing um, uh, attitude of uh, uh, Jewish people, Jewish Americans, uh, liberal Jewish Americans, and I agree with you, there is a change. But what do you say? I think the driving force now is the evangelical uh, voice in America, the Christian right. So what do you say to that? Thank you. Good. Thank you very much. I'm going to try one more round before we have some out speeches. Sorry for this moment. We're going to have to pause it for now because we've got to hear some responses. That was four I took there. My rule was meant to be three. Um, Roger Cohen, you had a question directly. You've been talking about Jewish American opinion. What about Christian evangelicals? Well, you're right, madam. Uh, The the evangelical right is there and for its own bizarre reasons is uh, an ardent and uncritical supporter of Israel. And that uh, combined with APAC, uh, creates this situation uh, in Congress uh, where you get a prime minister, an Israeli prime minister, who has done nothing uh, to advance peace, getting 29 uh, standing ovations. Um, the essential quality of the United States is, however, its fluidity. It's um, a nation that constantly shifts, reinvents itself. Uh, who would have imagined... Uh, Barack Obama in the White House. So 
Um, you know, there will be there will be further shifts. Uh, Jeremy and I have tried to describe some of them among the American Jewish community, which are beginning to change that balance of forces. And I think as the price the United States pays for the continuation of this conflict uh, becomes clearer and clearer, uh, that shift will continue. So I think even uh, the evangelicals can be circumvented over time. Thank you. And William, it was put directly to you. If the US did butt out, what is your path to a peaceful solution? Well, uh, Roger and Jeremy have tried to persuade us that there's no alternative to the United States. And in the end, we'll bring round that big ship and finally it's going to come into harbour and deliver a peace. My argument is the other way around, actually, which is that if the United States butted out, if it ended its tax breaks for U.S. citizens in, um, in delivering money to Israel in, in its settlement building, if it uh, threatened or even did remove its massive financial support for Israel, and if it removed its diplomatic support in the United Nations, what would happen? Well, first of all, at the moment, the occupation is free for Israel. There would be a genuine, enormous financial cost for Israel in sustaining the occupation, one I don't suspect that it could continue carrying on. Secondly, in the United Nations and in all the international bodies, a process of delegitimization of Israel as a result of this occupation would begin. People would threaten to take Israel out of the World Cup, out of the Eurovision Song Contest, out of all the kinds of things that Israeli citizens would Now you've gone too far, William, really. (laughs) Until now, it was all fine. But there would be a genuine cost to this occupation to Israelis, to ordinary Israelis, and they would start to see, and they would start to uh, get active with their own politicians, and they would want to see some change. It's the protection of Israel, it's the subsidy for the occupation, to make the occupation free. It's the fact that there are no diplomatic, political political or economic costs whatsoever that is continuing to keep this conflict and this occupation going. Thank you. Just a brief word, Jeremy. Jeremy Benamio, a question specifically mentioned APAC. How do you turn this around, given the strength of that organization? Well, I think that the problem that has happened in American politics is that a small group of people, smaller group of people in the American Jewish community have purported to speak for the entirety of the American Jewish people in the political process. We see consistently that majorities of Jewish Americans actually favor a two-state solution. They oppose the settlements. They want the U.S. to be more engaged. But that's not what American leaders have been hearing from the representatives of Jewish Americans in the political process. So we have been, my community, misrepresented. uh, And our voice has essentially been hijacked by a set of leadership that is out of touch with our community. So the work of J Street is to try to shift that and to make sure that a voice is given into the political process, into the policy process, that would allow a president to do the types of things that Roger outlined uh, in his uh, remarks that I think is the only route that actually would lead to a two-state resolution. Thank you. And the last one for you, Mustafa. Um, the question is said, if America did butt out, isn't there a risk that some of that pro-Israel funding would actually go to settlements and you'd still have a problem? Well, believe me, there is enough funding for both of them. Unfortunately, a lot of money is coming to the settlements from the United States, from private funding in the United States. And I think the funding that, go, that is going to keep the Congress in the pocket of Mr. Netanyahu is even more dangerous because it is neutralizing the only factor that could stop Israel from expanding settlements. Actually, the money that is given to the lobby of the Congress is complementing 
the money that is given to the settlers to expand their settlements, and both of them are destroying the future. I just wanted to make one comment about something that was said before, just to make things clear. There is no justification of any violations of human rights or democratic rights, whether in the West Bank or Gaza. This should not happen neither here nor there. And that's why we are struggling very hard to get back Palestinian unity so that we can get back what we lost, which is Palestinian democracy, and get back the role of a Palestinian elected parliament, which was marginalized because of this internal division. So this is very important. Finally, I think the fact that the United States is incapable of playing a positive role here because of the situation today should actually encourage all of us to work for an alternative. And the alternative is an alliance between us, not to have half-step or half-solution or remain in the same tunnel that we are all in today, but to open a new road. And that road is to struggle together against this system of oppression. Thank you. Um, what I'm going to do in a moment is ask for summing up speeches from our four speakers, and that's when I'm going to start asking you to cast your final votes. In the, in the next three minutes, what I'm going to do, though, is just round up a few more thoughts and contributions. They're not going to be answered directly, but hopefully the speakers will, might bear some of them in mind. Um, and I'm just, you know, just going to try and cram them in. As brief as you are, the better. So let's just start with you, if you've got a microphone there. I almost, there we are. As brief as you can, so we can cram some in, and then it's going to be you. Yes, uh, yes it, it occurred to me that it doesn't seem that any of you are actually disagreeing about anything. If, if the U.S. changed course, then they should be in the process. But I, I wanted to get some idea of, in particular, why Roger and Jeremy um, felt that there was a change in uh, liberal Jewish opinion and what that barometer was. What was your measurement for? OK, perhaps one of them will do that in their closing remarks. Whoever's got the microphone next is there. Yep. Hi. Um, I recently did some work with Israelis and Palestinians in Jerusalem, and we, they were university students and we debate and we got them to debate with one another about the future of peace and not one of them in any of their speeches mentioned uh, the US or the international community and likewise nobody on the panel has mentioned the wishes of the Palestinian people or the Jewish people and I think both of those things are kind of representative of the arrogance that we in the West have to think that we can solve it I think, I think there was quite a lot about the wishes of the Palestinian Jewish people from both sides, actually, unless, we've been, unless I misheard what I've been hearing. Let's get you, you as brief as you can and then pass it to him and then we'll come to you in between. Yeah. And this is going to be uh, it, I'm afraid, yeah. I just wanted to question, basically, the role of Hamas in the future of uh, any sort of uh, negotiations or anything. My uh, first question was, how can you uh, consider Hamas to be part of a unity government when they still refuse to accept any Israeli state and how you think they'll act? And my second point was, uh, I find it a, a little bit of a startling proposition to think that the motivations for this, uh, uh, the position Israel takes is financially motivated. When we know there's so much suffering going on in the West Bank and Gaza, it's quite a monstrous idea to think it's quite financial, and that's the main motivation. Thank you. Brief as you can, up there. Yes. Um, I'm very worried. Today, you know, Mahmoud Abbas said, you know, that there's no Jewish history at all. We know for 3,300 years, he said, it, it's just all fairy tales. And the incitement, what, the inflammatory language, you know, that children are being taught, you know, um, calling Jews pigs and, you know, and dogs, this, the, the young children, the education aspect, and the saying there's no Israel, no Israel on the map, 
And also, there's no, they have no history. Absolutely, they do. The exile is finished, the captivity is finished. They do have a history. I believe God has brought them back. So, those three issues. Thank you. Incitement is the sort of catch-all term for that. And this will have to be the last voice, I'm afraid. Whoever's got the microphone here... Here. Yes, you waited very patiently. Um, That's why I'm responding. Yes, I think both sides seem to think that uh, uh, the United States is compromised in its efforts to date. What I think we in Europe think is, why is it that the United States has to run this show? Why can't somebody else be involved? And what is wrong with Europe, which is uh, an economic power to be reckoned with? It's got some forces. <laughs> why cannot Europe participate have you in been this reading the newspapers? alongside the United States, if necessary? Roger Cohen said, have you been reading the newspapers? Um, uh, but, OK, we're, I'm going to make sure you get an answer to that question. Now, we're at that point. We're, in fact, a few minutes after it, but I know you're all anxious to go off uh, your, to your uh, South Ken bistros that we heard advertised by Roger Cohen before. So we're going to start voting. Ushers are moving around with these boxes. You know the drill. Uh, it's that one if you're voting for, the white one if you're voting against. And if you haven't made up your mind or you're consciously abstaining, slip the whole card in. While you're voting, if you can still keep a half an open mind to our summing up speeches, they are going to go in reverse order. Speakers, it can be difficult because there's that murmur of voting going on, but I'm going to ask you to soldier on. Roger Cohen, uh, two minutes to sum up, if you would. And perhaps you might want to address the question that came from there about what's the evidence that uh, Jewish opinion is shifting in the United States. If you can keep the murmur as low as possible, people can still have their minds made up. Roger Cohen. Well, I think the two last questions illustrated quite well why the United States has to, has to remain involved. Uh, we, one about, what about Europe? Why not Europe? Um, Europe is agonizing at the moment, uh, trying to deal with its own Euro problems, and certainly not ready, I think, to play a prominent role. And then we had the lady here talking about um, some of the bile incitement that goes on. It goes on on both sides. And what's that an illustration of? It's an illustration, and I know this, having been foreign editor of the New York Times and gotten it from all sides and then gotten it from all sides as a columnist. Uh, there is no conflict uh, in the world that stirs such passionate uh, feelings uh, on either side. And to think uh, that any agreement can be reached without it being midwifed by the, the world's surviving great power, I think, as I said, is, is illusory. Ladies and gentlemen, there are no rights of return in history. There's no right of return of the Jews to Judea and Samaria. There is no right of return of a Palestinian to Haifa. There is no right of return of a Jew to Alexandria or a German to Wrocław or a Greek to Smyrna. No, history moves on. It is painful to admit it, but history moves on. And the only way you emerge from cycles of conflict, gyres of growing violence, such as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, is through hard-headed compromise. Narrative doesn't get you to compromise. Incitement doesn't get you to compromise. Invoking the Nakba, invoking the Holocaust doesn't get you to compromise. You have to have hard-headed pragmatic um, deal-making done. In my view, that kind of deal-making with the kinds of guarantees necessary cannot be done without the active, consistent, purposeful presence of the United States. And if you believe that there is no way that peace can be achieved without that presence, then you should uh, vote against 
uh, the motion uh, tonight. People say, look at a, our opponents have said it all evening. Look at, look at what the United States has been doing for the last 30, 40 years. Can never work, never work, never work. It's dangerous to say things can never work in history. Germany and France went to war five times between 1870 and 1945. Um, now it's unthinkable. And in the end, the United States played a central role in putting an end to that. You drive from Germany to Poland today, Germany to Poland, without being aware of a border. I simply don't believe that past failure means there cannot be future success. Thank you. We're into closing arguments to persuade or sway those last few uh, voters. Um, Mustafa Barghouti, perhaps you might sum up your case for the motion, but also address the points that came your way. One of them was... Uh, incitement, but another one was how can you expect Hamas to be accepted on the Israeli side given that they refuse to accept Israel? That's how the questioner put it. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, uh, I know that most of you have voted already, but still I want to make this argument. <laughs> and I hope you will support the motion if you haven't voted yet. But uh, I think the United States in this case no, I will not repeat what we said, which is that why the United States is doing wrong things, etc. But one very important point is that the continuation of this existing role of the United States, the way it is, is practically paralyzing and preventing others from playing a positive role. We have seen that with the European Union, uh, where the United States blocked, literally, interventions from the side of the, of the European Union or even by the United Nations. We've seen situations when the United States manipulated the decision of the European Union by their influence on certain countries, knowing very well that a, a, a decision requires consensus inside the European Union. So practically there is a proactive pro-Israeli role which is counterproductive and destructive for both the future of the Palestinians and Israelis. And that's why we want to change the situation. If we had any hope that the United States policy will change and that the United States Congress will change in the course of the coming five years, I would be asking you to vote against the motion. But in reality, our opponents could not show any single sign of progress in that regard. Actually, what we see given what William described as Gingrich statements and other statements of those who are running to become presidents of the United States, is actually showing a very negative course of deterioration of the possibility of America playing a positive role in this case. We don't deny the role of the United States. We don't want to ignore the United States. We don't want to marginalize the United States. Actually, we want to do more work with the people in the United States, with Jeremy and with others, to change the situation, but not to put our hopes on an illusion. On the question of uh, incitement, I'm worried and afraid that uh, what you are saying here is nothing but a repetition of uh, an old Israeli propaganda. I, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can repeat to you, I can gather hundreds of statements made by Israeli leaders like Lieberman, 
or by Israeli religious leaders who describe Palestinians as cockroaches. But that's not, it's not a game of blame here. The issue here today is that we've done a big progress. Hamas changed. They accept two-state solution. And I don't know why there is such strong resistance to recognizing change. Change is positive, and we should appreciate it. And today, the majority of Palestinians support two-state solution. This is what we should care about. And we should encourage that, rather than deny it, and deny that positive change. But if I was an Israeli, or if I was a Jewish person, I would today feel, of course, I would feel embarrassed. I would feel a great amount of uncomfort, because there is nothing to be proud about in creating an apartheid system in the 21st century. There is nothing to be proud about in having the longest occupation in modern history. And that's why I say we want to liberate not only ourselves, but also our Jewish and Israeli neighbors from this horrible system. It's not against them. It's for their future. It's to end this situation of injustice and to truly have a situation where we will all feel quite comfortable at one point of time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. The votes are being counted, and because so many of you have turned up tonight, they, it may take slightly longer than, uh, than it would have done. So it, I think we're going to be ready in three or four minutes, but uh, two more closing uh, speeches to hear. Um, Jeremy Benami, I want you to answer that very first question that came from there, which is, what is the evidence that U.S. opinion is shifting, uh, particularly U.S. Jewish liberal opinion? And, and, and is your understanding the same as Mustafa Barghouti's, which is, he just said, that Hamas do accept two states. Is that your understanding? And please also sum up your case against the motion. Well, thank, thanks, Jonathan. There's so much uh, that's in play here that it's almost hard to know how to take two or three minutes and summarize everything. I think I would make three basic points. One is, I hope that it's clear that the status quo is unsustainable. And it's unsustainable on all fronts. For the United States... It's simply unacceptable for the world's sole superpower to be in the position where all of us, and probably all of you, agree that it has been proven impotent and failing over the course of the last 40 years to solve this problem. And so from an American national interest, as an American, I can say this has to change. So that status quo has to change. For the Palestinian people, the status quo that they live under every single day is simply unacceptable, and I share Mustafa Barghouti's hope that a nonviolent popular movement will emerge that carries as its flag a two-state solution. I don't agree that the global BDS movement has in its charter the recognition of the state of Israel. In fact, it is the undermining of the existence and the right of the Jewish people to a national homeland. I'd like to see that website and that charter amended to, to say we are doing this for a two-state solution. So the status quo has to change for the Palestinians. It needs to change within these movements so that those of us who care about a Jewish and a, Democrat, Jewish and a democratic Israel don't feel that the movement is designed to eliminate 
Israel altogether, but to find a Palestine alongside uh, of, of the state of, of uh, Israel. Third, the status quo is unsustainable for Israel. It's an Israeli national interest to have a two-state solution, to have it now before it's too late. And so for all of these reasons, for America's national interest, for the Palestinian movement, and for uh, the Israelis, the, the status quo is unsustainable, has to change, and I think we hear that all across the board. One place I can say it is changing is in the American Jewish community, where five years ago you didn't hear my voice. And you didn't have 180,000 people as part of our movement. And you didn't have a political action committee that supports our view be the largest pro-Israel political action committee in the United States. You didn't have hundreds and hundreds of Jewish college students organizing around a pro-Israel, pro-peace message. So things are beginning to change. There's a recognition among American Jews that all of these status quos are unsustainable. America's going to have to be involved if we're going to fix that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, very, very cool. Thank you. Through the extraordinary efficiency of Intelligence Squared, I have here, in the famous phrase, a piece of paper. Um, different context, I know. And uh, so, at William Seagott, if you close up and sum up as efficiently as you can, then I can tell people the outcome. It's a bizarre system, isn't it, when you're summing up, but the vote is already in front of you. But um, <laughs> just to clarify something briefly, I sat... Uh, less than six months ago with the Hamas leadership uh, when they were being questioned by some senior Western diplomats and uh, retired politicians. And one of them, the first question was, of course, why won't you recognize the right of Israel to exist? And I will tell you verbatim what the Hamas leader said. He said, first of all, which Israel? To which the diplomat said, what do you mean? He said, well, which Israel? An Israel which occupies the whole of the West Bank and Gaza, the Palestinian state, or, or an Israel on 1967 borders. And then he said, a Jewish state, one that recognizes only the rights of Jews, or one that equally rec uh, recognizes the rights of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And finally, he said, you talk about the right to exist. We always question what that means. He said, we'll never recognize the right of the Nakba to us, the fact that we all lost our land and our homes, you wouldn't have expected any, anybody who'd lost their land and their homes to recognize the right of it. We may be able to live side by side with Israel, but we can't recognize the right of the loss of our farms and our homes and our land. So that, I hope, gives you at least a, a sensible answer of what these people think. Um, secondly, I was with an Israeli uh, only a few days ago and talking to him about this debate and talking about the U.S.'s supposed ability or inability to play an um, even-handed role. And he said, tell the audience this. When I served in the Israeli army, almost every single weapon I handled said on it, property of the United States. Now, Roger and Jeremy have asked you not to let frustration influence your vote. I sure as hell hope it, it has. They want us to wait until after the United States presidential election in November and hope against hope somehow that the new president, whoever that may be, will stand up and do it all differently. And let's imagine for the sake of argument that the winner is the current president and he begins his new term of office as at the beginning of his first term and he decides to try and move things along in this conflict. What will his advisors tell him? They will tell him that his priority 
is to ensure that the Democrats retake Congress in 2014. And upsetting the Jewish vote by putting pressure on Israel will jeopardize this. Come 2014, his congressional allies will tell him he'll be gone in 2016. And pressure on the Jewish vote will threaten the democratic future. And the tragedy for this conflict with America in charge is that you're never more than two or three years away from a US election. You cannot ask millions of Palestinians and Israelis to wait for the US to do it differently. Waiting for the United States is like waiting for Godot, and Godot never came. Thank you, William. Okay. So, the outcome of tonight's debate, the don't knows, began on 212, and that number has plummeted to 42. The against vote, against the motion, against the notion that uh, Uncle Sam should butt out, it was 163, it zoomed up to 260. The motion, uh, the support for the motion, those voting for Uncle Sam to butt out, were 243 in number, that number two has gone up to 307. So 307 beats 260. So the motion that the best chance for peace between Israel and Palestine is for Uncle Sam to butt out has been carried. Uh, I think the last thing left for us to do is to thank four extraordinarily good, uh, powerful and moving speakers, William Seagart, Mustafa Barzuki, Jeremy Benami and Roger Cohen. Thank you all very much. Good night. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.